the decisions we make out there, they, they're heavy. It's, it's easy for it all to go well and you're the hero, you know, but guiding big terrain, you know, we're like walking on this edge, right? You make a mistake, like there's some really heavy consequences and it's not just, you know, the incident itself, right? It's like all of everything that follows and like families and all the things it affects. This is Chris Sunshine Edwards, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer. And Open Snow. Visit opensnow.com to get started with a free trial and enter the discount code AVALANCHEPODCAST to check out to receive 30% off your first year of Open Snow All Access. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Ten years ago to the day of this episode release, Chris Sunshine Edwards lived the worst day of his life. He was ski tour guiding in Oregon's southern Malawas when he watched an avalanche cascade towards his regroup area. He could see two of his guests get hit by the avalanche. The last guest and his tail guide gave no response on the radio. During his all-out heroic rescue efforts, Sunshine had to come to terms with the fact that the avalanche had claimed the lives of two members of his party and left two others with significant injuries. Sunshine joins me on the 10-year anniversary of this tragic event to talk about the event and reflect on the long road of mental and emotional recovery that has followed for him. Join us in this honest and heartfelt conversation. Sunshine, happy to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for making the time for us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Caleb. Yeah. So just to give a brief introduction, you can fill in some blanks here. But uh, most people know you as Sunshine. Your actual given name is Chris Edwards, but um, we'll probably uh, call you Sunshine throughout this interview. I'm going to give a brief introduction here to you. You grew up in Michigan, I believe and went to college in Durango, Colorado, and somewhere along there you started backcountry telemark skiing and um, found your way out to northeastern Oregon and started ski guiding in the Wallawas for Wallawa Alpine Huts. Uh, Sunshine's an AMGA certified ski guide, former avalanche forecaster, and an avalanche educator for Aerie based in the Roaring Fork Valley in Colorado. You spend a lot of time on the rivers in the summer, hanging out with your wife, Robin, and your five-month-old son, Cooper. Um, You've done a lot of river guiding all across the globe, it sounds like, in the summers. So, Chris, happy to have you here and hoping you could fill in some blanks about some of your activities and roles within the snow and avalanche industry. Yeah, no, that was was a great, thorough uh, introduction for sure. You know, currently I'm a 
based in the Roaring Fork Valley, uh, relocated here to kind of raise our, our child Cooper. Um, and I'm a certified ski guide, um, do a fair, fair amount of ski guiding, um, both off the, the chairlifts here at the Aspen Snowmass uh, Resorts and then uh, into the, the Elks, the West Elks. And we also have an office down in Silverton, Colorado. Um, and then, yeah, fair amount, um, especially this time of year, December, uh, I do a fair amount of recreation, avalanche education. Um, and then, yeah, summertime, I've been been river guiding, traveling around, uh, especially before COVID. Um, I kind of had a stint where I was going to places like Africa, the Zambezi, um, South Island of New Zealand, uh, Nepal, Peru. Um, but yeah, since post-COVID and, and new daddy kind of duties, um, I kind of do more kind of education or like training. You know, I um, teach swift water rescue to specifically like river guides um, kind of around the state of Colorado um, in the springtime and um, guide on a few different sections here and in, in Idaho. So Sunshine, I'm, I'm really happy that you reached out to me um, to come on the podcast and and this is a difficult subject that we're going to talk about. Um, February 11th, 2014, you were guiding a trip out of the Schneider cabin area on the south side of Cornucopia Peak in the southern Wallowas. And unfortunately, uh, an avalanche happened and took the lives of, of, a, of a guest and a tail guide. And I'm, I'm sure that was, you know in many ways, your worst nightmare coming true. You know, we're almost to the 10 year mark of the accident. And it, it seems like it's been a a long road for you personally to, to kind of like grasp some of the events that happened and, and just finding your way out of a, a tragic event like that. So I, I commend you for having the courage to tell your story and um, I have a lot of respect for you for for coming on the show and talking about it. And and I totally understand that this isn't an easy thing to talk about. Um, but let's kind of wind that that back a little bit. And I'd love for you to talk about what draws you to backcountry skiing and and what you love about the Wallowas and some of your early memories of of ski guiding in the Wallowas. No, yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, yeah, so um, I'd say, you know, what kind of drew me to the backcountry. Um, I grew up in the, the kind of the suburbs of Detroit, and uh, I was very fortunate. My grandma uh, had relocated to, uh, to Vail, Colorado. Um, she had bought a house there, like, I don't want to say like late 60s, um, and then actually remarried right before I was born to a, a 10th Mountain division ski trooper veteran. And so I, as from a very young age, I was like fortunate to, to go see grandma like over the holidays and, and ski, you know, outside of the great state of Michigan. And I want to say it must've been like middle school, but I just kind of became like obsessed. I was like, all I wanted to do was to be in Colorado and go and skiing. And, and, and I, I just loved like I love powder skiing. Like I love the untracked experience and, uh, you know, in high school, I think I went outward bound and like grandparents go 
hike 14ers and hike up into the gore range as a kid and uh so when i say went to fort lewis like freshman year 18 you know um I just was fortunate that like my roommates were like these kids from Denver and they were telemarkers and they like grew up doing river trips and like, that's what turned me on. And it was like to combine like, you know, the, you know, going out and hiking mountains and then also skiing and then having that untracked experience. It was just the stars all aligned. And I was like, yes, this is it. I love this. And, uh, even this year, you know, my first tour out, I just was like so stoked and just like making, you know, shallow early season turns in the facets. Yeah, every year I feel like that first tour, I'm just like feel like I'm that little kid again. Just like this is this is it. Like I, I just love it. Um so that's what turned me on to the to the backcountry really was that freshman year in Durango and um kind of the I want to say my junior year was like a big season for the San Juans is 2007-2008 that's all we did is just go skiing up in Silverton and the mountain passes um around the Juans and uh so I was river guiding kind of that whole time and and um I had this guy Joel Williams and uh he kind of brought me under his wing you know I was this young 18 year old like fresh from the suburbs, not really had a work ethic. And he kind of, you know, he, definitely some tough love. But um, I just remember just being like, this guy can do it, do it all. He could cook, he could build stuff, he could backcountry ski, he could guide class five rapids. And he had started guiding for Connolly Brown for Willowa Alpine Huts. And um, they had just started the Norway yurt camp and uh, he needed a tail guide. And so he got me in and that's like, it kind of stopped my college career <laughs> in Durango um, because I was like, this is just, this is all I want to do is go skiing. So that's kind of how I got turned on to the Willow Alpine huts. Um, and what brought me there was um, through the river. And, you know, uh, we did a lot of, overnight raft trips and um you know there's a lot of similarities as far as the domestic side of being a hut guide as far as just making breakfast lunch and dinner you're uh hosting a camp wilderness camping experience right and then just like the chores the cleanup so i kind of had some of those skills you know or at least i started to kind of get have some of those skills ironed out from that river experience and, uh, you know, that seemed to be a common theme, you know, like at Wow Alpine Huts, either we're like a river guide, like Kip and myself, like Middle Fork of the Salmon, multi-days, or you were a mountain guide like Victor McNeil um, from like Rainier and Denali. And so I can kind of get into Victor and I's relationship and, and um, but our two skill sets, I think, kind of complemented each other and to I. I worked with for sure the most uh, over my decade plus there in the Wallawas. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of what brought me there for sure um, was that love for powder skiing and, and uh, yeah, just the, the wilderness multi-day uh, experience and taking guests and sharing that was just awesome. 
Yeah. Talk a little bit about like the setup at Norway and kind of describe the Southern Wallawa terrain for people that might not know. Well, you know, Caleb, we were very lucky in the sense like Victor McNeil, myself, uh, Matt Promomo was there at the beginning, um, you know, forecasts up in the Northwest now. Um, we had, yeah, a really great crew of people. And um, my first season there, we actually built the double decker year. That was like one of the first things I ever did for WA. And, and I just kind of helped. I wasn't like the mastermind, but um, holding boards up. But uh, so it was new. Like we had all this new terrain. And I think historically there were people skiing back there. Um, and, and I've met some people. So, um, but, you know, I just remember getting there and then I think it was my second season, Victor and, and Promomo showed up and uh, Connolly was like, the owner was like, go figure it out. And so the three of us, I remember just like going on these missions of just like going out and skiing the stuff you could see way out from the yurt, like some of the lines off Red Mountain and uh, the Blue Creek Cirque. And uh, throughout my early years there, especially with Victor, like, we would be, you know, working, doing hut trips, and then we'd have some time off. And, you know, we didn't have any responsibilities, right? We were just like boys living in the woods. And so we would go and, you know, you'd see these lines like in the next drainage or like a couple drainages out. And so we'd go out there and ski them for the first time. And then, you know, that was the other really awesome thing about Lyle Alpine Huts. I mean, we had some really, and probably still do, like really great crews of people and like really strong skiers that would come every year, you know, we build this rapport with them. And so, you know, Victor and I would like go ski this line and we're like, well, we could take these people here for sure. Like they got game. And, and so that's kind of how we opened up a lot of that terrain, you know, is um, us going out, figuring it out. And then the next week taking this crew out there and, and they're like, wow, this is amazing. And so being a part of the beginning of Norway basin was just the right place, right time. And with the right partner too. And, and, you know, I mean, Matt and Victor are just such incredible people to be moving in the mountains with. And, and there's some other people too, for sure that were there, like Joel and Chago Rodriguez um, from avalanche science. He was kind of our snow safety director and, uh, you know, those first few years were super fortunate too. We had Don Sheriff come out from AI and he'd run a, a public avalanche course, but then he'd run, um, like our guide training. And so here I am like 21, 22 years old and with Don, like learning the trade of being a guide and looking back, I mean, what an amazing, cool opportunity um, to start your career, you know? And, uh, so yeah, that's at least my memories of the early days there. And I mean, yeah, I was just, I, I mean, I spent 11 years there, you know, and the accident kind of happened in the middle of all that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's like, I, I love skiing in the Wallawas and I, I, and I feel like I had a lot of, just I took a lot of ownership of like those camps and the terrain and and just like being able to contribute to all that. I was super proud of it, you know, I was super proud of who we were as an organization and like the the product we were providing people. And like I said, it was like it was almost all like return clients, you know. 
um, groups. So yeah, it was, you know, some of those groups I still ski with today, whatever it's been 16 years later, I'll go out and work with Victor and for his company on the Western Wallawas that you work for too. Right. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And we should add that, you know, Wallow Alpine Huts has several other huts, um, kind of scattered throughout the range, whether they're yurts or other styles of camps. And so in that season in 2014, were you mostly working in the Southern Wallawas? Yeah. You know, I always worked both, which I liked, but I think maybe it was 2012 or one of those years. I think 2012, actually, Victor and I kind of maybe took over more the Norway yurt side. And then the north end was like Macaulay Basin. And uh, yeah, so we had a, a few seasons there kind of running more, mostly running trips out of the south. And so the season before, you know, and I think that was kind of lost maybe in some of the media coverage of this accident like the snyder cabin started like us running trips there just started the season before that and it was kind of the same story right where like kip rand and victor and i were like going over there and figuring it out right and like making up names or runs and so yeah we didn't have like a ton of time really over there. I think maybe one time or two times before we started running trips over there, like we went over there and skied a couple of the big lines off Corticopia, the North face and the East side back into the Pine Creek there. Um, but yeah. And, you know, I remember when Connolly told me we we're built, you know, we're going to start a camp there. That was like snowmobile country over there. And I was like, this is like where the snowmobilers go. Like, I don't know how, keen those guys are going to be but um we didn't really have any user conflicts at least the short time we were there um but i remember you know one thing that sticks out was the first time i went up to snyder cabin to kind of stay at the cabin and preview terrain i was with, with kip and um we were skinning underneath the train trap where the accident happened and that train trap is like this chasm it looks like a canyon. And I remember being at the base of it and being like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> like, whoa, like this thing is heavy, you know? And there was quite a few little like drainage features, like train trap features like that. And I was like, that was unique compared to anywhere else I had been in the Wallalas. And just, I just remember that first time seeing it. And I was like, whoa. So I feel like that's like a good thing to share maybe. Yeah. And and talk a little bit more about the cabin. Like this is a historic mining cabin that's that's been I mean, do you know when it was built? It's been there for a long time. I was trying to talk to Connolly about that. And you know, it was like in the early nineteen hundreds, right? Like the heyday of cornucopia. Um cornucopia, you know, was this gold mining town that was like boom and bust. Um, and I think the bust was more in like the 1930s kind of uh, World War II kind of time is when everything kind of fell apart there. But this was, I think it had to be in like the early 1900s, you know, 1907, 1908. And uh, Schneider was a German immigrant that came and he built the cabin, lived there with his family. And he was a gold miner. And you're maybe familiar with that cornucopia area. I mean, it's just littered with gold mines, infrastructure. There's like tram cable on the mountainside you can still see in the winter and old road grades and just like evidence like 
just scattered of that old infrastructure from like a hundred years ago almost now. Right. Um, or longer. Right. So, so yeah, you know, it was a little different than our year experience, right? It was, you know, a lot smaller, it's a lot draftier, it's a little more rugged. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, I guess one thing that sticks out to that first season, you know, we took, it might've been one of the last powder horror movies from like the, from Noah and Jonas, uh, Howell, and, uh, yeah, we took those guys there and did a film segment and I, you know, we had like a little, had a little interview in there. And I think that's maybe relevant too, right. As far as me going into that season, cause that movie came out like right before and like, I was jazzed, right. Like I was on like cloud nine, you know, <laughs> like going in and I mean, maybe that kind of highlights too, just my ego <laughs> going into the season a little bit. Right. And, uh, that's a little bit about Schneider cabin, I guess. Um, and just it being different and having those kind of terrain trap features and very much, we were still figuring a lot of that stuff out. Um, so I think that's pretty relevant for sure. Sunshine, talk a little bit about what you remember about the early season in, in 2014, like what was going on with the snowpack and weather patterns within the range there. Yeah. Um, you know, I think just one thing in general for me going out to the Wallows every year, like I would always come out like after New Year's. I'd spend December grandma's house in Colorado and um come out at New Year's time and then, you know, things kind of didn't really pick up till like mid January. And then like February is like every day we're back to back to back. I think for 10 years of my life, I spent every night of the month of February in one of those huts, um, which is great. I mean, it's super cool that we got to do that. But, um, you know, that season I had gone to, to, to Jackson actually. And, and I, I took a ski guide course literally right, kind of right before this all happened. Um, I had some, I, I, I was in a ski guide course before that and then it got canceled. And so, um, yeah, I was like, all right, I need to make this happen. You know, I wanted to, you know, everyone, Victor and Matt and some other folks had kind of started their, their guide track. And then I kind of felt like, okay, I don't, I don't want to get left behind. I want to, I want to, you know, start my AMGA track here. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it was my sixth season working in the Wallows. And, you know, what I remember is it was, it was kind of somewhat typical in the sense of like, you know, you get the, the the mid to Christmas kind of storm cycle in December, kind of giving that baseline snowpack. And I think there was maybe two meters of snow from that kind of storm cycle in the southern Wallawas. I'm um, just thinking about how high the snow was on the yurt. And, um, you know, then January high pressure kind of came. And so we had two or three weeks of, of just kind of high and dry, but I, I was over in Jackson, you know, doing that, doing the course, the, the ski guy course. And, um, I remember I, I had a, basically I came like, I like got done with that course and got in the car and drove straight to enterprise Oregon. And, and I, I guided a trip on the Northern Wallawas over in McCulley basin. And then I know we did at least one, not two trips in Norway basin and you know it was a two meter snowpack you know and, and we had near surface faceting going on um and we were just you know out 
facet farming, skiing on those trips is what I remember. And, um, and then, yeah, I mean, before, you know, our trip, the storm cycle had started and I remember having a guide meeting even before, right before going in. And I think Victor was coming out and I was talking to him on the phone. And then we had like a guide meeting with Connolly, the owner. And we were really aware, like, like weather was like ramping up for like ground right before and during that trip going in. And that was my first trip that season going into Schneider. Like I said, I was, I was like, I think I did a trip in Macaulay and a couple trips over in Norway. And Victor was coming out of Schneider or, or Norway. He he was coming out, and I was going in, yeah. and I was going in um, with a group that I I hadn't skied with everyone, but the the group organizers had you know this is their third or fourth trip maybe you know, and I definitely had skied with them most of them before, um, but I think you know another part of the story is there our tail guide Jake. Um, unfortunately passed away. It was his first trip working as a guide. He had shadowed, I know the trip before with Victor and I at Norway, and maybe he had shadowed something over on the North side, but it was his first time like wearing that hat. And uh, his first time, I want to say even going maybe in a Snyder cabin, other than maybe going up there and doing some chores. Um, so I think that's relevant for sure too as part of the story, right? And he was an eager guy, like uh he was excited to be a ski guide and and pick things up quickly and Oh yeah. No, yeah. Jake was great. He was really excited to be a guide. He was excited about the program. His girlfriend was living down halfway with us and she was kind of contributing to like the trips, packing and doing stuff like that, kind of like the town side of things. And um, yeah, you know, and I think he had just come off of like maybe a, like a internship with uh, North Cascades Mountain Guides up in Zama. And yeah, Jake, I mean, Jake was excited. He was great. He, you know, had an outdoor education background, I believe, and, and, you know, had just come off this guiding intern, you know, this internship with those guys, which, you know, super great to work under Jeff and Larry. Um, so I feel like that was something else too, like going in to Schneider was I had developed, which turned out to be kind of a long-term problem for me. I was, you know, you mentioned I was a telemarker then. And um, I developed this like really horrific six toe on the side of my foot that eventually turned into this blood blister, then popped, turned crater, like awful injury um, that kind of ultimately led to me stop stopping telemarking because it's like where the billows are on the boot. You can't like bump it out there. And so, um, and so that was something I remember going in was, you know, because Jake hadn't been in there very much before or at, or at all. Like I was doing all the trail breaking. <laughs> it was a five day, four night trip. And, uh, you know, or a majority of it at least. Um, and I'm, I remember that being like a, a distraction. I don't know like how much that contributed to some of the, I think there's a lot of other things we can unpack here about the decisions I made that day, but you know, I think that's also kind of maybe part of the story, some of that. But yeah, we had seven clients plus a new guide um, and changing weather. 
And uh, yeah, and I had I had an injury. And I mean, I remember running into Victor even on the way in and almost thinking like, dude, my foot hurts so bad. Like, should I tap out? I don't know. I, I do remember kind of having that thought. So that's a little bit about the pre-trip um, or about the snowpack and, and how things were changing. Yeah. So, so you guys snowmobile towed in a ways and then skin the rest of the way into the cabin there. Tell us about the, the kind of first full day of skiing that you guys did out there. Yeah. You know, compared to all any of our other huts, at least at that time, um, it was the hardest one to get into. It was kind of a brutal climb, uh, the old ghost town of cornucopia to get up on that bench there. Um, so yeah, like you said, it's like a six mile snowmobile toe and then, um, just a steep kind of mean climb to get up into the Snyder cabin. And so, um, one thing we, we always did, and I don't, I don't know if they, I haven't worked there in a while, but, um, you always, we always did a companion rescue kind of scenario practice, um, the beginning of every trip. And so it was like kind of the status quo, like get to the hut, you know, get the hot drinks out, um, let people kind of change and get out of their sweaty socks and then go out, do companion rescue. And then, you know, we probably ski just like some little backyard just to get some turns in at the end of the day was the first day. And then, um, you know, I remember knowing that the storm was ramping up our first full day of like being at the hut and touring. I was like talking with Jake in the morning. We're making our plan. I was like, okay, like let's go up and over the cornucopia Ridge here. Cause like some of the best terrain was on the North side. Basically a hut is positioned where you're on the South flank of cornucopia. And that's also like kind of off that Ridge is where the accident happened. And so to, to hit the North facing terrain, you had to like climb up and over and then you ended up in the West fork of the pine. And, you know, you can see a lot of that terrain kind of over from Norway basin. We had an awesome day. I remember that, that first full day. Um, and like I said, I remember talking to Jake about like, Hey, like w- things are going to change. So like, let's take advantage of right now we can get up and over and we can ski some cool stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that was kind of the first day and then it was, so that was day two of five. And then day three was the day that the accident happened. Sunshine talk, talk as much or as little as you want about, about the events of that day. I mean, um, by no means do we need to kind of relive everything for you, but, um, yeah, tell us, tell us your perspective of the story there as much or as little as you want. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Caleb. Um, I remember waking up and sitting with Jake and kind of having, you know, we had our guides meeting and, and, um, the winds had picked up and there's a little bit of snow, I think like at the cabin itself on our snow stake or our 24 hour board was, it must've been like four or five inches. And, um, and I do know, I guess I'll, I'll put this out there. Like I try to find my guide notebook and we'll kind of get into that. But um, I'm pretty sure it's in like a, a lawyer's office, maybe in Portland, like I had a notebook from that week or from that time of year um, anyways. But um, so we had closed all the whole north side of the ridge. It was like it was south, pretty strong southwest winds. And I just knew, every, you know, everything was getting loaded over there. And so that, that was like the first thing talked about was like, all right, everything we just skied yesterday 
like our favorite kind of zone, you know, that's done for the trip. And so our plan was, was to ski the kind of gladed South kind of these like rib kind of, but not super steep, you know, kind of maybe low thirties, um, shots off the South side of cornic of cornucopia there. And, and like where it had been a little more wind protected and less scoured. Um, and so we did, I want to say two laps, maybe three, um, not all the way from the top because it was kind of wind affected up there. Vibe was high. Everyone's having a good time. And, um, there was this run that we had skied, you know, the year before that you kind of, so there's the big terrain trap, right? The big chasm that I talked about earlier, right? Um, seeing with Kip and so we're on the hut side of that and there's this kind of nice 28, 31 degree tree ramp on the other side of it. And, um, so I have this idea like, okay, we'll go all the way to the ridge and we'll bump over the chasm and we'll ski that ramp. And that would set us up really nice into the deep forest. And, you know, really I was like the rest of the trip now, like all day tomorrow too, like we're just going to probably have to play kind of mini golf, um, down there. We had some runs, like kind of my back pocket of like, you know, this is when, when things ramp up, we're just going to, this is where we're going to bail to low angle, short shots in the trees. And so climbing up and, um, you know, we, we, I remember talking like to Jake and the clients, like looking at the chasm and, and talking about it and, um, get up on the ridge and, you know, we're moving along the ridge and a couple of things stick out to me, like thinking back about it. And, and that's one that the ridge was somewhat challenging to move across. And, um, people were kind of getting like losing gas out of the tank. I remember that. And we we're taking breaks and people wanting to stop for lunch, but we're kind of exposed up there and whether like the clouds are coming in and out, like it, you know, that's a kind of common characteristic of the Southern Malawa is we, we used to call it the clag. These low level clouds come in and just like all of a sudden you just are like lose all visibility. And then you like opens up again and you get a window. So we're kind of experiencing that. And I just remember being like, no, let's not eat lunch here. We'll eat lunch in the forest and that will be better. You know, we could even like have a fire or something like that is something we used to do. And, and, and so I remember kind of pushing the group, pushing the group along the ridge. And, um, you know, we stopped at the spot that was, had like some coverage from some trees. And, um, I think Jake and I popped out and did like a hasty pit to see like, what that you know is kind of wind scoured and some of the some things are kind of loaded when loaded i was using it was kind of new to me maybe it wasn't that new but i was using like uh, i believe gaia and i think like using the map on my phone you know that was that was kind of new then like 2014 right like um and so i remember seeing like the little blue dot and where i was you know, we talked about it. And so the day before we were also dealing with that low cloud clag and I, on one of the runs I had set a boundary and kind of the viz, you know, you got kind of flat light. And I remember watching like two or three clients all of a sudden skiing like outside my boundary because of that. And so that sitting on top of it there, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to set this boundary because I want to, I want to keep everyone out of the chasm. 
and stack everyone to my right. And, you know, rather than ski one at a time, I'm going to space everybody out so they can see, you know, the first skier can still kind of see me and the next skier can see the next skier. And that was in the moment. That's who I thought was the right choice to do, which ultimately, I mean, this is the worst mistake I've ever made in my life. And, um, just all of it. Right. And what sticks out to me too, is I wasn't where I thought I was. I was much closer to the train trap than I thought. And I don't know if that was from my, like just misreading the, my, my map or maybe being like a few feet off, like on my pinpoint. Um, and I remember dropping in and I kind of did like, like a cut and I kind of dropped and I stopped. Cause then I could kind of see a little better. It was like a little bit gladed. And like I said, the low level clouds and, and I remember getting on the radio and being like, yo, Jake, like we're pretty far left and like, you really need to make sure everyone heads right. And, you know, in hindsight, I mean, I should just shut it down then and put my skins on and, and, you know, it's easy, so easy to do that. Right. Like coulda, shoulda, woulda, but Either way, all right. So I ski and I, I make it all the way down, and I have like our regroup point. And the first skier comes, second, third, fourth skier comes, and so yeah, there's four of us sitting down there. And then I hear on the radio, Jake calls me and yells avalanche. And I remember seeing the powder cloud coming down. And just not like being in disbelief, like this isn't happening. Like, there's no way, like, oh my God, like really. <laughs> and um, so, you know, the powder cloud came and, and, and like kind of where we were, like we were, we were out totally out of like the debris and, and even like, like, I think like where most of us that were down there had skied was kind of out of that um, where the, where the, where the, where the kind of came down and, and, but two skiers, you know, it was really, it was gladed. There's a lot of baby trees in there and two skiers got hit and, and got injured and we can talk a little bit more about that later. But, um, you know, and then two, the last two skiers are missing. And I just remember yelling on the radio and just being so mad. Like Jake isn't answering my radio call. And I ran as fast as I could in my skins. I transitioned all the way up to the crown and I'm looking around trying to get a head count. And then I realized that that part of the avalanche had t- gone into the terrain trap and into the chasm. And then once it got into the chasm, like the whole chasm shedded. And so myself and one of the clients that I, I had skied with quite a bit before, you know, and, and granted, we, we just two days ago had gone through these companion rescue drills. I mean, we're, we're, we're just going and got a signal. We got to Shane first. And I mean, I remember digging, I've never like, I wanted to vomit. I was digging so hard and, you know, we got to Shane and then, and then eventually we got to Jake and, um, in that order and, and our, the beacon searches were fast and efficient. And I'll just say this, like, it was pretty horrible what I found, you know, in the snow there. And, um, yeah, we'll just kind of leave it at that. Like they, they, that chasm, that train trap just wreaked havoc on on both of them unfortunately um and so you know knowing when i left to go search for the last two people 
that the two skiers that had been hit had both said they thought they had like broken legs. Um, that that's okay. Like potential life threatening injuries. So we had to shift gears pretty quick and start addressing that. Right. And taking care of the people that, you know, still were breathing and had a heartbeat. And so I got the, got the skiers that were with me at the bottom all together. Um, I guess I had them actually hanging out with the, with the injured clients and we got together and, and had like a little meeting and, um, where we were, I knew we were pretty close to an old skin track I had put in, um, that was going to take you straight to the cabin. And at this point too, I had already called and, um, you know, Connolly knew and they're sending in the cavalry, you know, all the guides that were available were coming in. And so I sent them out, not knowing how long that was going to take to get sleeping bags, pads to, to, to package these guys to, to just protect them from the elements. And so they headed out and yeah, I, I honestly thinking back and this happened the other day when I was kind of trying to think about it, like, I, I feel like I almost like black out there a little bit of like what happened in those hours. But, uh, you know, I had packaged both patients in positions of comfort and, um, and got them off the snow. And I, I remember I didn't have like any gear on either. Cause I'm like, got everything I have on them. Um, and then Victor and a few other guides showed up and we had mega mids, I believe, and, um, pads and sleeping bags and just like had them both packaged for the night. And then I, you know, they're like, we need to kind of go back to the hut and like get ready for like tomorrow. Cause at that point it was already dark. And I was like, well, I, I, I can't leave. Right. I have to stay with these guys. And, um, you know, in the helicopter, we had talked to flight for life. The helicopter was supposedly coming. And so, you know, I had one patient that was much more critical than the other. Both of them had life threatening injuries, but I do know that I had to spend quite a bit more time with one than the other. And, and I kind of, I feel guilty about that, that I didn't have, didn't spend more time with both because they were, you know, they, they, they weren't right, right next to each other. There's a little bit of a, a walk from one, one to the other. And, um, you know, I know that night out, I got very hypothermic, you know, I wasn't doing a great job, I think taking care of myself. And, you know, I remember thinking if I, I I would give my life to save theirs. Like I, I just, you know, I just want them to make it through the night. And, um, you know, the helicopter came, they long lined a medic down and he had these, like these sleds to long line people out. And I'm like, all right, this is it. This is awesome. Like we're going to get these guys out of here and they're going to make it. And then all of a sudden the medics, like weather's coming in we don't have time and left. He just zipped up and left. And I just remember being like, just destroyed like after that. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's the worst night of my life. Right. And I, I hope, you know, no one has to live through anything like that. And, um, you know, and so, yeah, like I said, I think some of that, I kind of black out. I know that one of the patients had a prescription that like, I want to say it was like Percocet or something in her, in her backpack. And I was, you know, timing that out and, and, and giving them, you know, what I could. And, and I was getting so shaky from 
getting being cold that I, I lost the the pill bottle. And I know when they went back to that spot in the summer, they found it like right where she was. Um, so I was kind of like, I was probably like losing motor function and that sort of thing. And I, I just remember when the, the sun came up, the cavalry came in and I got hit on the radio and I left the scene kind of in a daze and, um, getting on the back of the snowmobile to go to the cabin, you know, and the guides are kind of taking over just like floodgates open, just bawling because that whole night, that whole process, I just like, I just try to save face, stay calm and stay as professional as I could to just keep both those patients like as calm as I could. Right. Cause they, I mean, definitely like going into shock. Um, and so that was kind of my first moment that I could just like let that face down and just like ball. And I just remember feeling like my life was over, you know, like <laughs> I was in the ski movie, you know, the year before I was like, just, I did, you know, had an awesome ski guide course in Jackson and, and, uh, I probably had a lot of ego and I think that's it. You know, when you're 26 years old and you're a six year, six season ski guide, you know, I thought I was a lot older than I was, you know, I was, I was kind of just a boy, you know, and I just thought my whole world was done. And, you know, we kind of talked about this, you know, Caleb, uh, about just like how much, you know, that was my identity being a guide. Um, and I, I remember thinking before that accident, like, you won't get in an avalanche if you ski with me. Like we're, we're, you know, we're really good, you know? And, um, I definitely overestimated maybe my ability to manage the train. But like I said, like when I stopped and recognized how close I was to the, to the train trap and being like, well, you know, I'll just, it's okay. We can still, we can still manage it. And, and, uh, you know, not skiing one at a time, you know, I thought honestly that that was going to be the safer option. And, and, Obviously, if we did ski one at a time, like there wouldn't be four people that got hit, right? And so, yeah, there's a lot to kind of unpack there with with that. Um, but uh, yeah, so yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that, Sonny. And I I know it's I know it's not easy. So, um, yeah, we appreciate your story and reflection on that. Yeah. So, like, what did what did the next week look like for you i mean it's a a tragic event and you know you mentioned kind of thinking your life is over and and so what happened following that for you kind of emotionally and psychologically um describe your state well the first thing we did you know we got once we got the 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 two people out that were alive and had broken legs and, and other injuries. Um, there's still the, you know, the bodies of, of Jake, the tail guide and Shane and the client. And, um, you know, we kind of got rumor from the, for, uh, from the sheriff that he's saying things like, I mean, we're in rural Eastern Oregon, right? We're talking about ranching communities of less than a thousand. And so not, a, you know, not a lot of resources or maybe education on, on snow and avalanches going on at that point. And we were told that they weren't going to get the bodies out till, till the summer. And, um, to me, that was unacceptable. Like we were, no, it's like, I, I already had them both pretty much fully dug up and 
so that was what we did. Like a group, small group of us, Victor, myself, and two other guides went in and um, packaged them in rescue sleds and then drug them to a spot where we could then get the cavalry in and like fully get them out and, and like using snowmobiles and that sort of thing. But I also remember like I didn't want everyone, I didn't want to pass that trauma on to everyone, like, like the whole team. And so it was kind of like a select group of us, the four of us, because I mean, yeah, I mean, you're out there digging, dealing with rigor mortis. I mean, this is a couple of days later. Right. And, um, so we, we got, we got them to a position and, and then got them out. And, um, and the sheriff was there at the trailhead and basically the sheriff, it was the deputy actually. He was like, okay, like you boys are in big trouble because you just messed with the crime scene. And like one of you is getting arrested right now. And of course me, I was like, that's me. Like, this is, this is all me. Like you want to arrest somebody, it's me. And then he started backpedaling and, and, and was like, you know, actually we really appreciate that you guys like went out and did this. And there's just like a lot of people above me that are pissed about that you did this. And at that point I could care less. It's like, you could throw me in jail. You can do it. Or like, that's the least I can do is, is to get Jake and Shane out for their families. And then, yeah. And then, <laughs> Then, then, then the interviews all started, right? Like I was just sleeping in Conley Brown's basement. Those days felt like the longest days of my life and just, just so much darkness. And I had to interview with the forest service. I had an interview with OSHA, right? An employee died. Um, I had an interview with the longest interview and kind of the worst was the liability insurance lawyer. You know, and he would be like, oh, well, I'm your lawyer. He was not my lawyer. He, they were looking for like any reason that if we went to court, they wouldn't have to pay out or, or whatever, um, which we never did. Honestly, moving forward after the accident, at least the, 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 the clients and Shane's family, it was a lot more like empathy and support. And, um, you know, I mean, total darkness and sadness too but there's a lot less like anger and and finger pointing from all the clients and honestly like if that was probably one of the reasons i didn't kill myself was because they were so supportive in their as best as they could be given the situations of me um yeah i mean it, it was super dark um i did you know I interviewed with the National Avalanche Center. I believe it was um, Simon Troutman. And Simon was really great. Like, he was very empathetic. And, you know, I will say that I think that report, the actual report that was put out was like, you know, we wanted to get it right. And I was as transparent and clear as I, as I could be about, like, the decisions I made and, and why we did what we did and, and all that. Um, so, you know, thanks, Simon, for, for that. Um, and then, you know, too, it's like, I faced all sorts of stuff. I mean, I had people that I had worked with and that were close friends of mine, just like, they just had the need to like attack me. And like, as if I didn't know what happened was terrible. And I, some of those people I still haven't talked to since that conversation of them kind of coming at me like 48 hours after post accident. Um, you know, and then I had other people be supportive and you know probably the two three people that were just were super helpful for me were some of my mentors and that was like 
had a long conversation with Don Sheriff, who I, you know, I would say is probably the biggest mentor I've ever had. Um, if he knows it or not, the little time that we spent together, um, and Jeff Ward from the AMGA, um, also, and then Sarah Carpenter too. I don't want to, Sarah, you know, had also just gone through, uh, an accident. And so, you know, it just kind of helped not feeling like I felt so isolated and alone. Um, and I think like, all three of them just, you know, it's like, it's okay if you don't want to do this anymore, but it certainly doesn't mean like you just, that it's all has to be all over for you, I guess, in so many ways. And I, I try to I think I told you this, like my email got hacked. So I was trying to find like the exact words that some of them used. I know Don was, was a phone call, but it was really, really important. And I mean, I was in such a dark place that, that those people really, they, they maybe saved my life between my clients being supportive and Sarah, Don, and Jeff, to be honest. So this is something that no doubt, you know, you've been carrying and will likely carry with you for the rest of your life. Um, you know, like 10 years out or almost 10 years out, how are you doing? I mean, Caleb, right now, I mean, I'm, I'm doing the best that I've ever been since that accident i could tell you that i mean and it's through been through a lot of work you know um and i mean 10 years i mean time time helps for sure but you know i'm i just had you know my son cooper and and um yeah i mean i'm 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 you know in in a, in a really great spot like uh, i love my wife's awesome i'm living in the roaring fork valley the company i work for is awesome um and yeah you know i can kind of getting into into that too right <laughs> like how how did we get through how do we get from there to here you know everyone's got to take their own path through it ken wiley was recently on your show right and it's like there's a way through you don't want to you don't want to do see the things and go through the things i have you know like it's it is it's avoidable and i think he said that in so many words right like you don't you know and that and that's why you know like but like as humans, like we have this, or some of us maybe have this thing of like, I need to share my story, right? And granted, this is 10 years later of like trying to like prevent maybe other people's making the same mistakes. But the thing is too, though, it's like, you know, a lot of it initial, like the stuff I dealt with and like the the darkness was, wasn't just like the, the accident, right? It's like, then it's like the rescue and then it's like the media and then it's like the fallout and... So, you know, there's quite a few things that kind of happened post accident from being written about in, in the Potter magazine article. Um, you know, that was super hard. I mean, uh, the, the, the writer didn't talk to anyone who was actually there on the accident other than, than one person that had come in and kind of helped us pack package patients, you know? And I think for me, like certainly they asked if, for to, to, to interview me but you know none of the clients involved or Connolly like we're talking to him and and it's like I remember Connolly telling the CB telling me he's like you know you're kind of damned if you do damned if you don't and I kind of leaned on don't I guess you know and uh you know it just kind of felt like like so I don't want to get into like the deep the little details because they don't matter now but like there's a lot of things that article that weren't true 
and and in the moment like even just the littlest detail like would bother you know just spin me out um because i was probably you know still in this stage of denial too right and being reactive and defensive um but you know and i i kind of i wrote a letter to the powder magazine editor and he wrote a really nasty letter back to me basically and it was like this isn't your story this is our story now kind of was kind of how i took it and uh you know and then there's other you know there's other things too right and there's a letter to the amga i think mark chauvin was the president then and i can't like i said i I didn't pull that up (laughs) to like look exactly but i remember it was like to me in the moment it was like we're going to use this kid as an example you know this is why everyone needs to be certified and like this one, you know, like more or less. And, you know, I talked to a friend who's who's a pin guide and, and knows Mark. And I think in retrospect, 10 years later, it's like his letter was more addressing scope of practice, you know, and I don't know if that was a word we were using then, but, you know, and Mark reached out to me too. And, you know, I, I know that there was some guides that the community, there's there was like kind of maybe two camps of that of like, like, hey, like, let's not throw this kid that went through this traumatic thing that just got off his ski guide course under the bus. And then, you know, that other side of it of like, hey, we really need to develop, you know, the scope of practice, right? And, uh, and that was something that OSHA, you know, like I said, I interviewed with OSHA for a while is like, their takeaway kind of was, I was guiding seven clients and I was training a new guide. And it's like an eight to one in like complex terrain and a changing snowpack. So that was, that was kind of something I didn't think about. And, and then same with, you know, I guess part of the story too, like the, 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 the avalanche report, like it was days later that I, I found out that like that guests had started to stack tracks on the other side of my boundary. And that's how Ultimately, I think Jake and Shane ended up so far in to get into the train trap was that those first few people that met me at the bottom had stacked to my right and then people started stacking to the left. And, um, you know, I've never not taken responsibility for it because that happened. Like, ultimately, that's totally my fault. Like, I should have had, you know, bigger margins and I should have maybe given clear directions or we should have just gone somewhere else altogether. But I think one important thing is it's like, it's not like we're going out there trying to ski the, like some gnarly line. Like I'm, we're trying to use a 30 degree tree ramp to get back down to the forest. You know what I mean? So, you know, I think even then I always kind of thought of myself as more of like a conservative guide, you know? And I just remember struggling with that so much sitting in the basement, um, yeah, so yeah, it was, a, it was a dark time, you know. What has helped you along this path? So, you know, initially, I, I was going to therapy, and 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 then when I got out of the Wallawas, I did this EMDR treatment, and um, you know, I felt like a lot of that in those early stages, like a little bit was like, I'm doing this to get like, have everyone get off my back about it. And I knew I was dark and I needed help. And I I was, you know, probably struggling with, with PTSD and suicidal depression. And, but, um, I think that, um, 
I don't know how incredibly helpful the early stages of that was necessarily. And, um, you know, as in upon reflection, I think, you know, for some people it's like, it might take some time to like really be ready to kind of unpack that and really work at, at making yourself healthy, healthy again. And so for me, um, I was really going to therapy kind of years later and um, I found a therapist. His name is uh, Mike Lewis. He's based in the front range, but um, you know, you know, he has his own like psychotherapy practice, private practice, but he's also a certified like IFMGA guide. And um, he's also a Zen Buddhist priest. He teaches at Naropa. And I think when I saw Mike's like, like that fact that he was a guide and he also had these, you know, these other things that I thought were, were interesting and maybe helpful. Like talking to him was, it was just easier, right? Like he, we had like that same vocabulary language and it was just like, he could just like actually relate more. I feel like, I feel like some of the therapists I've seen before that, like, you know, I'm telling them how I'm feeling and like my story and they just like, there wasn't that same kind of connection, but you know, it wasn't all bad. Like I, I remember the first time I went to a therapist and enterprise, you know, right after the accident though, him telling me, however you're feeling like it's okay. Cause I remember being around people and like feeling like I couldn't smile. I couldn't laugh. Like I couldn't show any sort of like positive emotion. Like I was scared to show any sort of positive emotion, you know? Um, so that was helpful in that moment, but, you know, it wasn't kind of till later when I started working at it, um, that it was helpful. And, you know, and then honestly too, it was like, I went back years later and finished my AMJ guide track and I had a really great ski exam. And I think, I guess that outside validation, like really helped me kind of move past the imposter syndrome of like, I don't deserve to be here. And, you know, so I think that was helpful too, for sure. Um, and you've, you felt like that for a while, like the feelings of the imposter syndrome and kind of like, um, I mean, did you think about giving it all up in terms of ski guiding? Yeah, to- I've, I, I definitely did. I think I've thought about more of just like giving up life than given up ski guiding. And I think that was a hard thing maybe in the early stages was like the identity thing. Right. And so, you know, the first season after the accident, I remember I worked with Victor McNeil, I think the whole season, I never was technically in like a lead guy role. You know, I wanted to be kind of like have him there, you know, um, as my support that was super helpful. But, you know, later on though, I remember a couple seasons later that I'm, I'm like guiding in the Wallawas and, and, and just like, I mean, that's just like where I all of a sudden felt my, like myself again. Like when I was like out front, like guiding and the guests are just like so stoked and like the vibe is high. And then it's like, I just like all of a sudden like had that identity again. So maybe that was part of my healing too, was getting back on the horse and guiding in the Wallawas. But, you know, I just felt too, just like so guilty. Like I said before, like, you know, in the beginning of the podcast, like I was so proud of our organization and like what we did. And I just felt so guilty for like 
tarnishing that. Like it was kind of destroying me. And so, and some, somehow like going back and like guiding again and like making sure that that product was kind of like what it was and like giving those great experiences was kind of maybe helpful in the healing process. But yeah, I mean, it was a lot of work too with, with the therapy and like with myself and, you know, sure I'm a lot older now too, and hopefully more mature, but kind of like what Ken was saying, like, you know, and I I was a boy, like I was making decisions as a boy and I, you know, I was 26. I I was a boy, uh, you know, I mean, it's funny now being in like my mid late thirties, thinking about the clients we had that are like my age now following victor and i around and we're like 21 22 like let's go powder skiing we're gonna go climb this cool are you know like <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of wild you know and but like i said when you're that when you're that age you just you you think you're an adult right and you think you got all this experience and yeah so um you know my ego has shifted from thinking that i'm this awesome ski guy to like back to the, you know, all the way over to the imposter syndrome. I don't, I don't deserve to be here and like feeling like a, you know, like survivor, survivor's guilt. Yeah. You know, and and then now it's kind of like I've had to go to both those extremes to like figure out where the middle is. And I can tell you now that like, you know, that's, that's how I know that I'm more even keel in the middle because I've been to both of those extremes that makes sense sure how has becoming a father kind of changed that for you i mean it's still you know it's these five months so you know i think it'll it'll be interesting like it's early season still right now but i could tell you like i in, in the summers i guide a pretty aggressive like class five section of river in the colorado river and i could tell this summer i was just kind of like especially taking sketchy people, like people, you know, the just clients. I was like, I don't really need to do this anymore. And cause it's your identity, right? I'm this class five raft guide. And it's like, it's like, yeah, like, I don't know if I really need to like risk my life, like taking these people down these rapids anymore. Um, but I think skiing is maybe a little different for me in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think even just since the accident, like I just, you know, I move slower. I think a lot more. I give myself wider margins. I read people better. I have a lot and I'm I'm kinder. I have a lot more empathy, I think, you know, and and so I think that you know translates to being a dad. It gave me like a good skill set to kind of try to take take that on and um and I think too just like it's not just like guiding like even just like in my personal skiing. Like I I'm I'm doing all those things. You know, I'm giving myself wider margins. I'm moving slower i'm listening more sunshine thanks so much for sharing this story and you know shedding some light on on your path out of a pretty dark place i think and there's a lot of wisdom here and and i know it takes a lot of courage to talk about this so thank you for that is there anything else that you want listeners to know or or that you want to talk about well you know thank thank you caleb for having this this platform you know and um in our little niche industry here i think a lot of things have changed and like being more empathetic and like 
not shaming people sharing their stories. But say that's sometimes for me now, the most triggering thing is like a comment section on the CAIC when someone's like reporting something and you're like, people just, some people just have the need to like, they want to be critical, you know? Um, so, you know, I think just being kinder, you know, is, is one thing. I'm really fortunate to be over here in the Roaring Fork Valley with Aspen Expeditions and you know, I moved into like a leadership role there and, and I have, I, I, I love being like a, a mentor and I still am a mentee too in a lot of ways, but, um, with guides, like, and I, I didn't, I don't think I'd got this either. It's just like, you know, the decisions we make out there, they, they're heavy, you know, and like, it's, it's easy for it all to go well and you're the hero, you know, but when we're guiding big terrain, you know, we're like walking on this edge, right? You make a mistake, like there's some really heavy consequences and it's not just the incident itself, right? It's like all of everything that follows and like families and all the things it affects. And so, you know, just kind of just move a little slower, give yourself wider margins and, uh, You know, and then for me too, it's like moving forward, it's like moving to the acceptance and like taking responsibility for the decisions I made was kind of like the only way, you know, to really like move forward from it, which is like you said, it's not, it's not, not easy. And like, yeah, I mean, it was, it's scary. It was scary this morning (laughs) opening my computer, right. And like getting on this with you even though it's something I volunteered to do. And it, you know, that felt like one of those scary things though, that like, like something you need to do, you know, like sometimes it's, it's good to do things that scare you. Right. Yeah. Well, it's nice to see you where you're at these days, Sonny. And, um, I'm excited to hopefully spend some more time with you out in the mountains in the future. Um, but yeah, thanks again for sharing your story and, um, it's been great having you on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, Caleb. Look forward to it. Yeah. Going out skiing. All right. <laughs> we'll see you soon. See you, buddy. It's truly the greatest honor to me to have the trust of our community to be able to share stories such as Sunshine's. Although most of our podcast episodes that we release aren't all about tragedy, Creating a platform for the non-judgmental sharing of stories like this is exactly why I started the Avalanche Hour podcast. We must learn from each other and not judge each other on the decisions we make in such an uncertain environment. If we enter Avalanche terrain, know that we are all susceptible to pitfalls of the human condition and the uncertainty that is steeped in our favorite environments. Music on today's episode was provided by Ketza, Bringing you into the hour was sunshine. That was an easy choice. And taking you out is extraordinary spirits. Find more of Ketza's tracks to inspire you at ketza.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Need some unique creative artwork for your next project or business? Check out MikeT.com to see more of his work and get in touch. Give us a follow on Instagram. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast the best way to stay up to date on the latest releases of the podcast episodes subscribe rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform then tell a friend about it who you think would enjoy the show got any feedback we're all ears email us at the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com 
or you can find a contact form on our website, www.theavalanchehour.com. While on the website, you can find links to past episodes and even kick us a few bucks if you think we're doing a good job over here. Thanks to Andy Jackson for your recent contribution. Join Sean Zimmerman Wall on Thursday, February 15th, as he interviews our good friend, John Littleton. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. See ya.